0: Well, no matter how this game comes out tonight, it's going to be long remembered. Here's the stretch now. Lillis takes a lead off first base. Here's that three-and-two pitch to Weekly. Call strike three. The ball game is over, and Cincinnati wins it by a score of one to nothing. As Johnson pitched a no-hitter and lost the ball game by a run. In the ninth inning, no runs, no hits, one error, one man left on base. And the final score, Cincinnati. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the uh, BBA, BBA Today, another episode of the BBA Today. The BBA, I don't know how I was going to say that, I messed it up, but this is episode number 69. I am Ted Schmidt, GM of the Twin City River Monsters and Twin Cities River. It's just, I hate the name of my team. And I'm joined, <laughs> as always, by Ron Collins, GM of the Yellow Springs Nine. See how that rolls off the tongue? See how it's not like a string of consonants that don't go together and also are weirdly placed on a keyboard to where it's very difficult to type? Well, the oh, big hi, problem Ron. with
1: Twin Cities River Monsters on typing is it takes so damn long. well, the other thing is if you don't know how to
0: type. Like so if you don't type properly, if you're somebody who just learned from like video computer games and just having the keyboard things, all of those people don't use shift keys properly. So the more times you have to like cap go use a shift key in a string of characters and you don't type properly, the more just insanely
1: aggravating it is. There you go. Well, see, the Yellow Springs 9 has a, a another a hidden advantage in that way, or not so hidden, but, you know, YS9 actually sounds like it would be a brand name that would be used, right, rather than out of the park, uses those three-digit uh, or two-digit whatever abbreviations right. so that it can do things more rapidly. But if you're writing an article, for example, you can just type YS9, and it just sounds like it would be a normal thing that a normal journalists would be writing whereas if you were to type no for new orleans yeah you're just shouting right or twc (laughs) for twin cities i mean yes it works in context of who we are but it just doesn't feel right in the fictional world so i I have that advantage too but it just shows the moral superiority of yellow springs and yellow springs fans and the whole organization when it comes right down to it so
0: yep that's like wait i say no no, Rod. <laughs> Capital N New Orleans at you. That's what I'm saying. New <laughs> Orleans. Yeah. They should. That should be their three-letter like abbreviation. It should be NAR. So we have some things to talk about today. I think we're for the listeners. We're oh, it's uh, January something-ish. Or no, we we're, know we're midway through preseason. So we're actually.
1: Yeah, Ted. You got to wake up and and smell the March. It's it's yeah. March thirteenth right smack dab in the middle of spring training in yellow springs nine the nine 19 has won a grand total of two spring games this year um so spring i don't know doesn't
0: matter you bring like 170 thousand players that don't belong on the active roster to spring training for various reasons and i'm not saying your plan isn't good but you are probably have one of the least representative of your actual talent rosters assembled in spring training out of anybody yeah yeah so
1: no we always do that that's I like to do that for two reasons. It's fun to read the board and see what all the different general managers do as far as spring goes. And quite honestly, I don't know whether there's any right, wrong, or indifferent way to go about it. I I worry about injuries, so I like to bring my young kids up to play. Because, number one, that means that for two weeks my main guys are really only getting an at-bat or two. So that reduces the injury field. Uh, The other thing is, in my mind, it makes me think that all these young kids are getting two or three weeks of mentor time with the big league coaches who theoretically should be better. I have zero idea if that works in game, but it makes me happy, and so that's what I end up doing. I will say that the downside of my approach of putting 60 or 70 kids in there is that come the end of spring training, it takes me a gazillion, whole bunch more time in order to split all of my teams back out into their local spots, and I, sh- I should actually save like lineups and depth charts. That would be a smart thing for me to do. I don't know why it has taken me until here on. March 13th of 2045 to even think about that, but if I would have actually saved all of those as lineups and so forth, I could just paste them back in once I get all the teams in place. So with any luck, my my old brain will remember that come next year.
0: Right. Maybe I'll remember to do that next year. This is the first year I've had non-roster invitees possibly ever. I am definitely one of the more minimalist people. I still bench a lot of my starters and just play my my strategy in the past had been to just play the other guys on the 40 man they're kind of a quad a replacement injury replacement types the problem i had with twin cities is that i have not been in control of this farm system so all of those guys are out of options so i don't actually have like a cadre of you know 15 to 20 extra triple a level players that I could promote and not be able to get, you know, get back into minors. And so I've actually, I've got a bunch of non-roster invitees this time to sit up there and just soak up, you know, injury field.
1: There you go. Just remember to send them back down before, <laughs> or if you leave one on your roster, remember to 40 man them so that Matt doesn't have to pull out what few hairs he has left from pulling out his hairs for us.
0: <laughs> right. I, I, I always wonder about it. every year. I'm like, gosh, people, why can't you do better at this? But the, then I, Doing here, it differently Yes, yeah, here is the public me.
1: service announcement for all those folks listening. When it comes to ending spring training, check and make sure that all your non-roster invitees who you have left on the active roster are actually on the 40-man because it doesn't automatically work. The game should just be able to do that for you, but unfortunately it does not. So please make Matt's life easier and do not leave non-roster invitees on your 40-man. How's that? Not on your gun. Yes. Something like that. Right. Whatever it is that I mean, please do that.
0: Get your rosters right, jerks. That's where we're going with that. Uh, and if I'm shouting throughout this episode to listeners, I am trying to do better about the fact that in previous versions of this, I'm a mumbler and I would start out really loud and then I would kind of trail off at the end of the thing. And then I would get excited. And then sometimes I would just kind of respond like this. And so for various reasons, I'm trying to keep the level of my voice more constant, which means I might just be turning into Randy and shouting. Constantly. Who knows? We had some topics we wanted to get through today. We we're going to talk a little bit about you know, there have been a lot of trades recently. We're not going to dig into individual individual things, but there's some, some themes that have cropped up that we want to get into, and that might get us into the remainder of the free agent signings. And another thing to talk about, of course, because I got into a fight with Aaron about Hall of Fame stuff. It took me three whole months <laughs> of being back in the league before I got into a fight but I didn't call anyone any names, and I'm going to count that as a win. And I was only angry for maybe three hours, and I'm also going to call that a win. And I managed to, you know, say nice things to Aaron at the end of it instead of several days later sending a PM that was like, "I'm sorry that I am a pedantic asshole," which is usually <laughs> what happens. So progress on my part, human growth. Yeah, that's so, all good.
1: I that's um I think that part of part of the uh, reason why there is uh, energy around certain topics is because everyone actually cares about those topics. And so by definition, that's part of the joy of the league. And I would definitely call all of those uh, successes. I mean, I don't know if you can have a a good solid debate uh, without getting energy up, right? That's, you got to have some energy. That's why else would we be here if we didn't have some energy around our uh, around our beloved players or our beloved mindsets or all that other good stuff and i know that when i came into the league the flavor of conversations that i was having was different from the flavor that i had after say 10 seasons and is different from the flavor that i have right now right you go in you go in a cycle of of things and uh, I know Aaron has been around forever and ever. And as far as from my perspective, you and Aaron have both been around forever and ever. <laughs> but, you know, everyone gets into, into kerfluffles and, and all that other good stuff. So I like that word, kerfluffle. Kerfluffle. It's a great word. Yeah, it's a, it just kind of flows right through, right? You, Yellow Springs mm-hmm. 9, kerfluffle. I like that.
0: It, it also sounds like a breakfast food.
1: It does. To me, anyway. It does, like, you know, like a Lego kerfluffle. Right. I, I like that. But yes, we've had trades and we've had signings. I don't know if we want to just kind of bounce back and forth between them a little bit. My thought as I was looking at at, uh, both some of the trades and in particular the signings, uh, the things that kind of overlap here is conversation about contract values and things like that. And it shows up more firmly in signings from my perspective. Uh, When I look at the listing of signings that have gone on this year, you know, especially as we get into January, February, and now March, there's lots of interesting ones, and we could pick out an item or two. Um, you know, would love to chat about Diesel Dave a little bit. Diesel Dave All-Star, who costs three teams five <laughs> participation points to, to actually make his name All-Star. I love that. <laughs> you know, the thing that actually strikes me about these is that we're not seeing six-year big contracts. The closest we come to that in this January kind of time period are El Paso has made two or three five-year deals, but each of them have options at the end. So in reality, they're kind of like three-year deals. So it feels to me like, I I guess I'd be interested in your perspective of which one of these two are the biggest weights, right? Uh, Because they kind of interrelate. In my mind, I'm, I'm questioning, is it that our general managers are getting to be a little bit more savvy around their financial approach to some of these kind of mid-range um, veteran players and not committing long-term, uh, or is it that the population is actually filled with so many of them who are... I mean, most of these players are valuable. They, they're going to add parts to the, They're the good sightings in the context of value, but there's also a bunch of them, so how much... How much of the fact that we're getting what I consider to be more savvy kind of contracts is related to GM and GM learning improvement? Or how much of it is actually just driven because these are the kinds of contracts you would give to these kinds of players? Now that I've rambled forever. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Can I Can I say yes? I think... I think there are three things. Two of them are kind of tied into half of one of your arguments, and the other is about our GMs. I think our GMs have become more savvy. I think between Slack and podcasting and a little bit of an update of the way we communicate, um, we have kind of coalesced the thinking patterns a little bit. I think we're more, as GMs, all on the same page. We're not operating in vacuums with little feedback, which is. Not that we were ever doing that, but I I think there are more ways for us to talk to each other and and critique, and so I believe there's a little more learning going on. But I don't know that that's the big factor. I think one big thing is I honestly think OOTP has in some ways improved its contract demands for older players. I think that in recent versions... I have seen more 35-year-olds asking for one- to two-year deals rather than every 35-, 36-year-old player wanting a deal that takes them into their 40s. The other thing I think has affected this is the glut of young superstar talents that are getting extensions has forced more 28-, 29-, and 30-year-olds into free agency. And the demands of those players not the 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 young guys not only is it forced more guys into free agency but it's also made it so that people don't want to offer them six-year deals they they can't and and be reasonable so you have guys like diesel dave and mario de ortiz and lionel crepin and tufu young and william wood and angel de castillo all of whom are diminished versions, well, except for Diesel Day, but all of them, and he doesn't need any diminishing, (laughs) um, but all of the, well, maybe he does, his ego does, but uh, all of them are, are guys who are more or less not the same players they were when they were younger, but they're sitting around until this late part of free agency where their demands shrink to one or two years. You know, there's this. I, all these players were asking for six year deals early on. And then when spring training rolls around, they decrease their demands because they want to get back into the free agent market as soon as possible to get the big money. I think the game is doing a better job of that. But I do wonder is this just kind of that superstar bubble moving into their arbitration years that has tied up the money and forced these players into? the spring training signing period as opposed to the regular free agent signing period, which is more expensive. So I think it's a combination of factors that has gotten us to where we are.
1: Now I'm really happy that I actually asked the question uh, because I hadn't thought about a lot of those different pieces. Uh, I think the Umeba, Umeba, whatever people pronounce it, um, I saw that conversation on the board, also plays into this to some degree, right? Because you've got some, uh, some cash siphoning off some player's Uh, that are uh, interesting. It's always fun to go and take a look at the rosters of the Umeva teams and um, check where certain guys went and so forth. But I have not actually thought a whole lot about the game's propensity. This is actually a place where maybe the uh, GM learning and patience comes into play with the -the out-of-the-park improvements. Because I do agree that the basic algorithm... Of the way that the game is moving through the months from November through March have gotten quite a bit better. It feels like to me, you know, offers, uh, requests early in the cycle are often fairly high and then start dropping at a rate that feel more realistic to me. From my perspective now admittedly I'm not playing deeply in free agency as much in the past couple of years as I have but the way I, I see the numbers come down it feels right but that plays into the concept of GMs getting more GM like because what it means is you're not seeing a lot of middle grade guys signed in November and December right, right. they're waiting they're waiting the the game out properly to where the market plays in their favor rather than getting anxious about needing, I must fill my shortstop role right now so I overpay for a guy who is well past his prime and blah, 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 right? You don't see that happening nearly as often. And, uh, you know, the Diesel Dave signing, which I'm going to come back to because I just love Diesel Dave, right? And I'm happy to see Diesel Dave in Omaha, still in the heartland, because he's, he's just kind of fun. Uh, going to be really interesting to see what Diesel Dave does in Omaha because in the Chicago Park, obviously, he's going from a dark, uh, a dark, dank Chicago park to a teeny, tiny, dark, dank Omaha park. <laughs> 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 uh, they, they're both my rivals, so, I'm, so I must consider them both dark and dank. But he's been hitting 30 home runs a year in Chicago. I mean, he could hit 45 in Omaha but still only put up a war, still valuable. I, I, just, you know, I just don't know what to, to think of him as far as overall value is concerned because he's never had a, sub war, a sub-zero sub war, but he's been close to replacement about half of his years and more like one and a half to two war a couple of his years. Really an interesting player.
0: The other part of that is that he's only one time put up an on-base percentage above 250, which is just horrid, <laughs> just mm-hmm. really... And then but then the other part of that is any offense out of your catcher position is a huge, huge plus because so many of us have to pay or have to play garbage offensive catchers because there just aren't catchers that can hit. And a catcher that can sock 40 dingers, I don't really almost care what else they do at all. Right. It's it's that sort of I'll take that. I'll put him in the seven hole and just be happy.
1: Yeah, that's what I'd so, say is, you know, given that on base percentage, he's got a hit down in the seven, eight, nine range, but I would guess he's probably a slightly above league average defensive catcher at a 7-8. Right. You would think he's, uh, I haven't looked at his, at the actual numbers, but I would guess he's uh, slightly above average in that sense, so he's a positive, and he can, If like you said, if he can hit 40-45 home runs out of the 7-8 slot That could be a a pretty big value before it's all said and done.
0: Unless your team can't get on base, in which case you just can't afford to have him in the lineup.
1: Omaha has never really had a problem with getting guys on base. Well, I mean, Well, they have, but it was due to player
0: choice, not due to park issues, right? right? So Uh, And maybe he just funnels into that. But I think Niles has kind of shifted the way he built his team. I do think that we have to, you know, just a big shout out. Thank you. Thank you to Vic for Diesel Dave All-Star. I think it's a, you know, this is one of the best aspects of this being a writing and storytelling league is we all get to enjoy. We all now believe that Diesel Dave is a giant, arrogant asshat. And it just makes him being a player much more fun for everyone all the time.
1: And in my fictional little world, he does have a comic book named after him. Comic <laughs> book character. That's that's in my in my world, he's got some kid sitting in his uh, design studio making a a glossy comic strip with Diesel Dave All Star. Does he? Does he like? Does he run
0: around with like a like a jersey with the sleeves cut off and carries a bat everywhere he goes? <laughs>
1: of course. <laughs> <laughs> Always has a different uh, facial hair, uh, you know, makeup because you know he's incognito and whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Sun- sunglasses with eye
0: block on underneath them, like <laughs> so on. Um,
1: Wears a mohawk, you know, whatever.
0: <laughs> so. uh you know, the, one, looking more at these uh, free agent signings, you know the the ones I think that stick out to some people are in, in the light of talking about contract value are the El Paso signings of Ross Quicker and oh, who was the other one? Mike and, England and Mike England. Yeah,
1: which, and there's another guy. Uh, he Terry. He got uh, picked up Terry Cochran too, if I remember right. Is it not Terry Cochran? Oh, uh, Cochran. Uh,
0: yeah, like Cochran. We already uh, Randy and I already talked about him, both of yeah, us like that Cochran. deal um not the, terry terry is the manager Tommy is the kid right yeah oh um, the uh if you, know, if you were if you were uh dixon you would say terry is the hall of famer who got snubbed <laughs> and which i i disagree with but I'll, I'll never stop bringing up uh how i have just shafted kevin's hall of fame choices over and over and over again personally because i'm a jerk um and the england picker signings if this was a team if this was a team that was trying to compete and had was it that phase where you have to be really careful with how you spend your cap dollars they would be awful awful signings. they're not awful signings. now this is El Paso needs to spend money they need to add any wins they can to what they do and both of these players will probably add wins did they pay more than that sure But both of these deals are three-year deals. They're not going to get into the expensive arm portion of any of their players. And they'll probably make them a little bit better. Neither one is a player I like. Uh, Neither one is a player that I would try to have on a competitive winning team. But El Paso signing these guys to upgrade positions is better than them not signing players. And so there's this balance of player talent value and contract value. Or not just contract value, but the amount that you're paying for what that player will do for your team. And I think that the traditional way of thinking, and I still think many of our GMs look at things this way, is that player value, talent level value is the big part of the picture and contract value is the secondary part of things. And I don't believe that that's true. I think that you need to turn that around. The overwhelmingly more important thing in a salary cap league. And maybe this is the reason the thinking is so backwards is because we're used to growing up in Major League Baseball that up until recently, it still doesn't have a salary cap. But now they're trying to cheat the, you know, the big money teams are trying to cheat and act like there's one. Maybe that's why we think this way. But in a salary cap league, overwhelmingly, the more important part is the contract not the player talent level. It's the contract in relation to what that guy is going to add to your team. And that and that changes. That's not a static thing. That's different depending on how much cap space you have, where you are in your win cycle. And El Paso is at the point where spending money to add wins, as long as it doesn't get you into trouble with your good players that you want to extend, is always the right choice. Right now, should, should El Paso maybe have – overpaid a little bit more early on to get better players, maybe. But it's still better now for them to spend than not spend.
1: I 100% agree with with your basic assessment of the deals for uh, El Paso, and in particular, England. Um, Ross Quicker has been a a fairly high-quality baseball player for some time here in the BBA and so you could look at his deal the whole five years there's a reasonable shot that quicker is going to actually play out those whole five years but the point is the team has the option you know he's 28 years old right now be what 32 or 3 when his contract runs out there is a reasonable chance that Quicker will degrade and not be worth the $8.5 and, and it's actually an interesting uh, option set there because he, he drops cost a little bit. You know, at the end of the day, I think 7 to $9 million over those five years for Quicker, if he ends up being the three-war player that he can be, then I think that's um, it's hard to argue against that from just a raw value standpoint. Now, he's not going to get any... Uh, El Paso is not going to get any excess performance for their price, right? You, I doubt quicker is going to throw down a six war season anytime soon. Uh, but I think that's a, a pretty fair and a, and a good deal. I think it's a good deal on both sides. Uh, England in particular fits your conversation to me the most, because I will admit I've never been a huge Mike England fan. Uh, I think he's always been, an interesting player, but he definitely is the kind of guy that El Paso needs coming up the curve. A strong left-handed hitter. I could see if Nigel Laverick um, and the El Paso fan uh, uh, staff can find a way to keep him hitting right-handed pitching only. If he can platoon him or something in that range, you might see Mike England's overall value increase. Right? He, he just can't hit left-handed pitching at all. And at 28, I'm thinking five years from now, the the chances of Mike England playing out five years of this contract are extremely low. So it's a bit of a sophisticated um, balance there between, uh, I like your, your conversation contract value versus player value. Mike England's contract, in my opinion, if you were to just wait dollars per war and So forth. I mean, if I were to have signed Mike, if Yellow Springs 9 were to have signed Mike England to this contract, it would devastate us because it's not a good contract in context of a high profile competing team. It eats up too many years for too many dollars, right? If I turn that around and I say, this is the exact kind of contract that I would have signed in 2025 or 2026, perhaps, probably not by the time I got to 2029, but... Theoretically, a professional level hitter that I can find a way to put in places to make him productive. Yes, this is this is a really good signing in that sense because, and I'm paraphrasing you, I think El Paso is moving up the curve. Knock on wood, and but they're still not gonna. Nobody is going to expect El Paso to be in the postseason in 2045. Probably not 2046. 2047 starts to be more of a window where they probably are reasonable they could get there. to expect they could get there right. Yeah. By that time, Mike Lind England's contract is either going to be done or movable without any real. I mean, you could if as long as uh, as El Paso's finances are in as good a shape as they could be. I mean, he could cut Mike England and eat it for one year, right, or something like that. The point is, there's options. I, like I said, I like your contract value versus player value conversation because that weighting actually swings a lot depending on who you are as a general manager and where your team is. You know, like I said, this contract for us would be a killer. This contract for El Paso uh, actually has a lot of potential upside. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting flavor. And it also seems to fit in my very quick scan of El Paso's organization, right? It seems to fit a need, uh, an actual on-field need. So if they are overpaying a little bit, they're overpaying in a place where they actually have a, a value. They they, right. they have some upside to it.
0: Right. The, there's another route, and this will get us into the trade market, which has continued to go um, – I may squeak out another trade analysis here or there, but I'm, I'm behind on previews and other things. so You can't do I'll have them attention. all,
1: Ted. Ted. Well, I,
0: you, you can't I, I do, do them like all. I like participation points. I need <laughs> I need them. I, when I go into my winning phase, I would like to have about 1,000 just sitting around. Um now, you know, so over the next four or five seasons, accrue a whole bunch. But yes,
1: but this league is working too fast. You cannot actually; <laughs> it is physically impossible to do every trade analysis, Ted.
0: Well, I'm going to try, but no, I'm actually not going to try. But anyway, <laughs> I, I noticed I've noticed a theme, and I'm not going to single anyone out because this is multiple GMs, and they're not all doing it all the time. But it is happening. And it goes back into, I feel that too many of our trades are weighted on talent, player talent, and not weighted on player contract. A 55 potential, now I know you don't like overalls, but just for the sake of ease of conversation.
1: We will make an assumption that they are completely valuable
0: and representative. What a a 50, let's, if we're saying a 55 potential starter is like a solid number three, right? So let's, let's call, let's say that. Let's say the 55 potential. Let's say. 55 potential slash solid number three starter. That should net, if that player is on a minimum salary deal, so we're talking healthy 21 to 22 to 23-year-old minimum salary, pre-arbitration, 55 slash number three starter, that should net you more in a return than a Hall of Fame guy on a one-year deal that's being paid $17 million. Anybody trading for that guy is gen for the younger dude is generally trying to compete, which means that cheap player that will make their team good is of tremendous value to them, and you should be extracting that value from the team. It and that that not only is that player, that young guy, worth more in value than the Hall of Famer, he's worth more than a future Hall of Famer on, on an expensive three-year deal. For a team that is up against the cap, that is in their winning window, that is trying to add talent, those cheap players are so tremendously valuable. So if you're selling those players, gouge the shit <laughs> out of the teams trying to add them. Demand that they someone will give you pieces for them. And if they don't, Then just keep the players. And I I know we all want to tear down and sometimes it's you you take the deal that's there and available. So maybe I shouldn't say just keep the players. But I've seen people getting, you know, they're trading that fifty five min sal cheap mid rotation starter and they're getting back like a prospect that might turn into the same player and like a relief prospect. That's not enough. That's not enough. It's not close to enough. The, the, you should get two guys who might turn into that player plus two relief prospects. You're literally, those guys are so valuable. I, I can't say that enough times. And again, it's not because they're the most talented player. It's because of what their value contract complex means. When I was thro- blowing up my farm system, I was in talks with a GM who offered me uh for us player that on my block, they offered me one option, option A or option B. And option B was one of these young mid number two slash number three type starter players. And I flat out told them that's I'm not giving you enough for that. Don't trade that player without getting a massive haul in return. <laughs> and this is a little bit better. This was a guy who probably is a number two starter or maybe a weak number two starter on a on a cheap part of their deal like you, you just and, and if anybody's out there you know i don't like to just be contrary you know, kind of like i love being contrary i'm not gonna lie <laughs> but i'm not trying to be a contrary
1: <laughs> jerk. Yeah, yeah, uh, let's not let's not uh, sugarcoat things here Ted. if you're disagreeing <laughs> with me about this you're wrong you're just flat out wrong well there, there's, there's wrong and there's wrong um right. Uh, way back in the old, old, old days when I was in the uh, old fobble FOBL. F-O-B-L. We had an even a bigger situation, right? Because the way the, the finances were done completely out of the game, it was a totally different system. Free agency was done via this really cool e- uh, eBay kind of auction thing. And one of the things that was structurally different about the league was that players had, uh, there was no arbitration. Players had five years of minimum salary. And then after that were free agents, right? There was no extensions. There was no nothing. You didn't have to deal with any of that. It was just whatever. But what that basically meant is the core of your conversation is about understanding and respecting the value of men's salary and those arbitration years, which even in arbitration, you're generally getting a good deal, right? uh, For a player that you want to hold on to uh, that arbitration cycle is generally going to get you value for the dollar, so uh, pay attention to that. In that league, in the Fobble where you had five years of min-cell, that was like spiked, right? A minimum salary player for five years was worth gazillions, <laughs> and so I think that's... Um, the the point that I think you're making and you're completely right on is that uh, making an assessment of what the value is of your minimum salary players are um, a big deal. And we've talked in the past, I don't know whether we've talked on the show or just in the sideline, right? I mean, you can even see it in, as BBA general managers get to be more general manager-like, you start to see it come out in trades here, too. Players in their, uh, probably players who are at their most valuable and tradable. The really good players, you're very rarely going to see a great player on a min-cell traded without there being a pretty big haul coming in. Right. Where you start to get some mixing and matching is when you get kind of more of a midline player. I like your conversation about a number three starter, right? Sometimes how valuable is it? What is a number three, right? Right. is different for each of us. What is a number four? How valuable is a number five? You know, a number five on a mensal contract can be really super valuable. Right. You know, they get into that first year of arbitration, they're no longer quite as valuable, but they're still pretty valuable. A really good player is probably most likely to be traded between that first and second year of arbitration because at that stage they're still valuable, meaning their performance is gonna be more than what they get paid. Uh, So, a competing team is going to be more interested in them, right? It's a messy thing, and the way a general manager, I'm going to synthesize what you're saying, I think, into this picture of sometimes we lose track or we don't think about the bigger picture of how valuable this guy is on out into the future. And I think that's fair. Uh, I also think that's part of the general learning of what it means to be a general manager. And I get that wrong all the time. I mean, my my personal assessment is I get it wrong mostly because I don't understand mix and match between teams. Um, I don't completely agree. Um, you overlay all of this conversation about contract value and min-cell and so forth onto this need to build your team and to have a plan i have said before there have been i have no problems making a deal in which it seems clear to me that the war values future and present are going to be lopsided against me if it helps me hit my plan the other thing i'm not certain about in some of these deals because i just have not spent the time to dig down into them I will sometimes give away players on the, you know, cheap on the dollar merely because I've got a 40 man roster problem. I I'm not going to be able to keep this guy anyway, so I will give away a mincel for almost nothing just because he's going to go on waivers anyway <laughs> and then I will literally get nothing. <laughs> so right, I don't a... know how much of those are are in some of these um they shouldn't look at. be
0: for the teams I'm thinking of. So that is a problem for a team that is competitive, that is at the top of the win salary cap juggling curve. For a team that is selling, that shouldn't be an issue. And yeah, actually, I. But I, it I,
1: could. Yeah, that's it what I say. C- I just don't know. Yeah. It, um, it
0: could. And the other thing is, this isn't a, you know, in keeping with your plan, if your plan is to move your window forward in the future. And the player is not doing you, any good. well, yeah, don't hold on to them until they've lost all their trade value and you get nothing for them. I've just seen so, and, and I'm not, and that's why I'm not picking on any one particular deal because any one of these deals that I've seen could be fine. It's just the number of them I'm seen. I'm thinking like seven, eight, nine trades in the last two week real life period. I feel like I've seen one of these, you know, not all star, not elite, not even a minor star. But just kind of those solid, good minimum salary young players. And I just feel like the returns have been pretty weak, like eight or nine times. And this is all these are all like a buying, trying to win, trying to compete now team, taking a player from a team looking to looking towards the future sort of situation. And so maybe half of those make sense, but there's just so many of them that it makes me wonder is is this a looking too much at the player talent? and not enough at the, you know.
1: Well, I mean, the the first and foremost is, number one, the GM could have just made a mistake. I mean, that happens, right? GMs make bad deals. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've
0: I've actually made two or three during this whole process I made with Twin Cities. I traded for uh, two players that were going to go to, (laughs) I traded for two players that were going to uh, go to free agency if their ARBs weren't picked up. And forgot to remind the team that I was trading with to pick up their ARBs. They were like, <laughs> so I traded for two guys that are free agents and are now in the UMEBA, oh, um, which was a mistake. And then I traded for another guy that I thought had two. This is that back to the whole showing the wrong. I, I traded for a guy I thought had two years left, but they only had one year of ARB left, and I just got confused by the fact that they show last year's salary matrix um, after the Landis, which. makes me insane um so yeah i mean we all make we all make mental mistakes and that's why and again this is why i'm not singling out a gm or singling out a a particular trade because i don't i don't know it's just the number it's just the number of them makes me wonder is are we are we looking at this right that's all
1: Yeah, i think the other aspect of it is just you know both of us need to uh be able to take step backs steps back sometimes My my tongue and lips will make these words. Both of us need to sometimes take steps back. And we have a similarity between you and I, Ted, in that we both are attempting to build programs, right? These long running things. And I know you have specifically said you just hate the win now idea. Although you are personally running it right now with Twin Cities for other alternative purposes, <laughs> um, I don't discount the win now kind of thing, right? Or I don't discount the idea of I just want to move the player. I, I just I need to I, you know whatever for whatever reason I just want to move the player. And a good salesman, as I've said, is always closing, so you get a deal, and you that is okay and you take it and it may be a mistake or you may even say at the time I'm making a mistake but it's a deal that I want to make right for people like you and I we would look at that and put ourselves in their shoes and say what in the hell are you doing right what are you (laughs) that doesn't make any sense uh, because you're not building long-term or you're not building enough long-term. That, that's another nuance to that. You, if you should have gotten more, what we're saying is you should have gotten more for the long-term. That's a individual judgment value too. So that's the thing. I think there's, a, there's the aspect that sometimes GMs just make mistakes, which we all do. Uh, there's also a learning curve. It took me a good five seasons to seven seasons really to understand value the way the league does things. The other thing you I want to come back to it because you made a comment and it just now struck me. you know we're used to things thinking about baseball as we live it and see it in real life. Um, we have a salary cap here, and baseball has never had a salary cap, although it now has this kind of luxury tax soft cap that teams are playing with. There have been two or three times over the past at least three or four weeks where general managers have come to me to ask questions about finances, right? And there is definitely a learning curve between the way the salary cap works with budget and dollars available. And there's a whole thing going on around Slack right now about this. Weird thing where you're seeing, you know, I've got 140 million dollars available, you know, or 40 million dollars cash available, but my I can't spend it because my cap is whatever. That's just a fundamental misunderstanding or uh, lack of thinking about how the salary cap plays in relation to budget, in relation to cash, in relation to you know, all these different things. So, there's some mechanics that are different about the BBA i also think it takes a general manager some amount of time to understand and quite honestly i'm just going to be blunt here it took me until i actually sat down and made that stupid little podcast where i walked through created a flow chart and walked through the bba finances it took me until that point which is what 18 seasons or 19 seasons of the bba to really deeply understand exactly how these things all interact. <laughs> yeah, so, it's not. So I don't want to say that it's quantum physics, but it takes you some time to actually think about it to understand what's happening there. So,
0: well, it's not simple, right? It's 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 not that it's not that the the math is hard, it's that the number of inputs to the equation, right? the, the complexity there, there's enough different numbers to keep track of that makes it difficult. And I'll admit that I don't like keeping track of it. I don't want to have to keep track of it. That is why and I don't know about for you, but one of my big motivations for when I tell people who are like, well, how do I make my team better? My first answer is figure out how to make money. I just want to get my revenue up to I get my revenue up to 150 million every year, so my budget's 150, so I don't have to care. Because once your revenue is high enough that your budget's 150 every year, you can take budget right. off the table. And that's
1: the phrasing of that is really key. And, and you know we're getting a little pedantic, and so maybe we've kind of spun out, and we can go into into our other topic. But the one thing that I'll say, the phrasing is really key there. You know, I want to figure out how to make money. The my opinion is about 90% of people will say I need to make a profit, which that's not wrong. It's just not right, right? The key word that you said there was revenue. If you make enough revenue, the question of whether you make profits or not becomes kind of moot. But you can make profit here in this game and still drive your team completely into the ground. right? Right. You can make a profit by saying, I'm going to field nothing but 500K players, and I'm going to win 40 games a year, and my finances, when I do that, I will make money like mad because, by definition, I'm going to make $60 million on the media contract alone. And so by definition, I'm automatically guaranteed to make money. But your revenue will be down so low that your budget will never catch up. <laughs> right. so, so you're right. The, right. It's the, the, the phrasing of making money is very important to understand.
0: Right. And you're absolutely right. What I should have said there is I wanted to figure out, you know, people ask what well, my answer should have been when somebody asked me, how do I make my team good? My answer should be learn how to get your budget to 150 million. That's how you get your team good. The first step in making a good team is getting your budget high enough that you don't have to care about your budget. And the way you do that is you increase revenue. Right. Anyway, not profit. I don't care about profit at <laughs> all. I am not the owner. I do not give a crap about that. It is whatever you can do to earn enough money, that next, not earn enough money, to generate enough revenue that your next year's budget is higher.
1: And that's yeah. fine that, that's all good it all plays together into this contract conversation too because we're, we're basically just talking about paying attention to and understanding the structure under which the finances of the game are driving you so summarizing it down into you know revenue streams are very important but in that context of creating revenue you want to be have you want to be having players on contracts. Who will create more value than that contract is is costing you, and so by definition, then the value of a minimum salary contract for almost any player who creates war is valuable, <laughs> right? right? So anyway, that's a bubble, bubble, bubble. Yep.
0: Well, the last the last thing we wanted to get into was a Hall of Fame discussion because I raised the stink, and there are different. I will fully admit that I probably don't care enough about the fame portion of this and that I am towards the end of the discussion about, you know, there's a spectrum of people versus is it the hall of player value versus the hall of fame. And I am way on the player player value side because my, in my viewpoint players who don't generate a ton of player value shouldn't be famous. I don't care. I don't care. But I also like, this is just a mindset for me. I don't care about famous people. I don't care about movie stars. I don't care about whoever. Like, I literally never, so-and-so, I just don't give a crap. I don't understand why E exists as a channel. I mean, I I understand why it exists, but, like, I wish it didn't. I wish that that wasn't a part of our society.
1: You're a player value over, Ted.
0: I am. I am really, really bad about it. And so I know that I'm to the far end of the spectrum about that. But my general, when people make the argument That well, so and so they may not be the most valuable, but they're famous. My answer is, why are they famous if they're not valuable? Like what, you know, when it comes to baseball, if they're famous and they're not valuable, then you're paying attention to the wrong things, especially in a fake baseball league. These aren't real people. It's not like someone's out there. Now you've gone too far. No, nah, you've gone too far. <laughs> well, I just went on about <laughs> the lovely uh, story of Diesel Dave Allstar who is definitely way more famous than he should be. So maybe I'm just full proud.
1: But <laughs> well, there's fame and there's You fame. know, you know I, I mean, you know, I've i put on the uh, I put a note on there in your conversation about Bob Euchre, right? I mean, I'm making a a side point about that. I mean, Bob Uecker is clearly famous as a broadcaster, and I think Aaron actually put a note on there. I mean, he's a Hall of Fame broadcaster, and he should be. He's. Uh, I don't know whether Bob Uecker is a particularly brilliant broadcaster, but he's fun to listen to you know, at at times. You know, he's no Vin Scully when it comes to technical expertise, but he's definitely in, important and. I, you know, the way I think of Hall of Fame value, I've talked before, I love baseball for its stories. I love the narrative around it. I love the a season has a story to it. You know, this past season, it's a cruddy little season because of all the things going on. It doesn't mean anything in context of a 162 game season. And anyone who suggests that it does is probably missing a whole lot of point. But it has a storyline to it, and it's an important one. To understand and the context and all these different things, I it is a shame. I'm, I it is a shame for Dodger fans that they did not get to see the Los Angeles Dodgers play a 162 game season and finish. Uh, they were clearly the best team in baseball, they and their fans were robbed of a 162 game season. How do you put that into context, right? Does the fact that Kershaw uh, rose above and, and played well in the postseason I mean there's, a, there's all sorts of narratives. John Mick has a narrative about him uh, in Madison and you know we've talked about I, I like your point about 500 home runs doesn't mean the same thing in BBA speak as it means in MLB speak. Maybe that number is 540, you know, if you're trying to equate just raw skills and talents and so forth and overlaying it into our environment versus MLB's environment, you know, John Nick still has like 160 or something like that, um, or 560. I think it's like 540 it, or something, it, it's Some It's some number more than 500, right? Or compare Moreland and Mick, right? Those two are interesting because their home run totals are fairly similar, but their war numbers are uh, considerably different. Moreland is a stronger case for on the war. Scale, just player right? value. And just player yeah. war value calling. Let's call war player value, which is dangerous because then we're also leaning upon out of the park to calculate war in a way that we like. um i i I would love for out of the park to actually publish their war equations 98 percent of people would not care but i would immediately dig down into them and understand are they you know i mean that that would be important to me it would make me feel better to understand that out of the park is actually measuring war in the same way that we measure war right or in whatever way they're doing it is different i don't know what The right statement is there. Uh, You know, the bottom line to me is the Hall of Fame is about this. um, There's an equation between war and counting stats. I think it is extremely rare. It happens on occasion where you see a counting stat that is just huge for very little war. Right.
0: Can I I jump into that really quick? Without a doubt. I don't know that that statement is true. And I think this has to do with the. In real life, that is absolutely true, but that's my entire point about guys like Dusty Rhodes and John Mick and to some extent Steve Dempsey, although I disagree with Aaron's argument that Steve Dempsey is close enough to 3,000 and so he's giving it to him, but that's uh, a totally different argument. I, I can see the narrative as an argument, but I, my argument, my response to that is no, he didn't get there because he wasn't good enough to keep playing and get there, but I don't know if it's out of the park. I don't know if it's our environment that we've created, but the player that assess that accrues a certain counting stat without being as good, quote unquote, from a value standpoint as what we'd expect to get that counting stat actually isn't that uncommon in our league. Uh, in, in terms of in, in terms relative to real life. It has and it has to do with the fact that we can create players who can hit 50 home runs a year and 15 to 20 doubles. That's not a real life thing, right? That's the whole, that's the whole Moreland case. Yes, it's happened once or twice, but there are literally three guys on this hall of fame ballot that are like that. There are players all over the league that hit home runs, but no doubles or can hit 60 doubles, but you know, 10 home runs. That's not a real thing that, you know, that's not like a, so part of the thing that is baked into that 500 home runs gets me in the all time elite player club. It's a shoe in is it's a marker for the rest of how good that player is. And we have this idea of what that is in real life. And that doesn't necessarily apply in a BBA. And the other thing that, you know, the same thing with dusty Rhodes, 3000 hits, you know, you and I have dithered back and forth about comps for dusty Rhodes. And how close we can get a real life comp to him, but the answer is we really can't get that close because there just there just aren't guys who in real life can be so good at hitting the ball and don't get any extra base hits to. It, 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 well, I shouldn't say any, but don't get a lot of extra base hits in the way that he just got so few. It's just not a thing. And so, you know, I voted for Dusty Rhodes because. He's a good enough unicorn that I don't care about his war, and he, you know, I, I don't like him, but I've come around that. That's, you know, that seems people like that, and that's that's fine. Um,
1: well, the, the, the other thing, know, about jumping the home in there, is, you know, the Dusty Rose comparison. Yes, it's very hard to find a comp for him. That doesn't mean that twenty years from now there won't be one. And I would, I would actually, I, I'm going to go back on myself. Given the way that baseball is played today, without any environmental changes. I doubt that we'll ever see a Dusty Rhodes. If right. baseball were to actually decide, you know, hey, we are going to do something about this strikeout slash home run thing because we think our fans are getting bored, we're going to deaden the ball and move the pitcher back and, you know, whatever other kinds of things that they do, then, I mean, I don't think that there's any reason to think that um, that a Dusty Rhodes could not possibly exist, right? It's just we've only got no. 100 years, 120 years worth of baseball, and it's, you know, and, and we have what we have.
0: Yeah, I think you could configure configure an environment where he could exist, but we've never had that environment. Like even in, like, you people want it well back in that. No, there has never been an environment where a guy can be so skilled that he'll get 32 or 3,300 or however however many hits it is Dusty Road has. Because that is an insane skill. They can be so skilled at getting the bat to the ball. And those aren't, you don't get 3,300 hits, dinking the ball everywhere. That's not a thing. That is literally impossible. You have to be making good hard contact.
1: There's there's never been a environment player matchup that has created that. Because um, yes, right, you could definitely never seen have it. a guy who can hit the ball hard, but he's so dang slow he can't get very many doubles. <laughs> right. I mean that. Oh be a, no, a that's
0: that's thing. I don't you know. Maybe. The point is, it's this. Uh, we're we're way off. He's weird. Dusty Rhodes is weird. Let's just leave it at that. The other the other thing I wanted to touch on the 500 home run thing. It's not just that the BBA number is probably like you said. I said 560, 570. Maybe that's too high. Maybe it's more around 540, 550, somewhere in there. In which case Mick would be right there. But it's not just the number. It's not just that like the because our individual players have hit more home runs that the, the number should be higher than 500. It's that because the whole league hits so many more home runs, that the value of an individual home run is lower. The home runs are still great. Like if, if you can, if you can take the player who does only one thing, you know, it's back to that. You take the 10, the five, 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 five player, or you take the guy who's going to hit 172 home runs. And do nothing else. He has 173 hits and 172 of them are home runs. That's the best player, but that's not a thing. That doesn't exist, right? And that's why, you know, when you look at the spectrum of players that do exist, the most important single skill, single stat, is on base percentage. It outweighs power. The the, the highest correlation of anything to wins
1: is on well, base the percentage. In, in the terms interesting of, comparison, there is going to be. And correct me if I'm wrong here, right? Um, what struck me when you say, you know it everyone is hitting them well in today's major league baseball right your number seven eight nine hitters are capable of hitting 20 home runs right right so take modern you know current modern day baseball and you're a baseball writers of america person who's young and upcoming right this minute and time moves forward 30 years You start looking at the question of who goes into the Hall of Fame. Time runs up maybe 15 years, right? (laughs) Uh, 15 or 20. You start looking at the question of who gets into the Hall of Fame, and you've got this guy who's been hitting number six all of his life, and he's got 458 home runs or 502 or whatever that number is. At that stage, perhaps your mind starts to change around the perspective of whether this 500 500 is a nice round number it gives a nice narrative there's a good story to it and if when i was a kid a 500 home run hitter was a beast right that's right i think that's what your point is uh, in that conversation right. and so i think that it is fair 100 percent fair to look at it and say hey just because a guy hits 500 home runs that does not necessarily mean that he was one of the best players um
0: well, right. and I think it's already happened. The other the other comment here is that yes, everyone's hitting home runs now, and I, I do think this will happen to happen in real in Major League Baseball in real life down the road. But we're still not like steroid era home run rates. Even now, we're not steroid era. Well, actually, I think we're we are. We're pretty close. But it just
1: doesn't. It's just it that you don't have right. Barry Bonds hitting 73. Right. What you right. got and is like everyone the, the, hitting 25. Right. And and that's the but that's that is the the kind of the
0: big point is it's it's a, it's not just that because there are more home runs, it's, it's two parts, right? Because there are more people getting to 400 and 500 home runs, our number should be a little higher, but also it should be even higher than that because the individual value of a home run is lower. That's why our first baseman war is so low. And I, I've made this point before, so sorry if I'm repeating <laughs> myself to the people that actually read this stuff, but if you didn't read it and you're listening to this, what's wrong with you? Get a life. <laughs> but... Um, the reason our I struggle this forever. I mean, I was wrong. I remember right around the time I left the league, I was getting like, why is what is O T P doing with WAR? Why is our first baseman in DH WAR always so low? Well, it's because they don't have a they don't have a skill that other positions don't have. We have great hitters all over the place. We don't have as many good hitting. shortstops and second basements as as we used to. So maybe we'll start to see the value of of slugging first baseman go up. But for the time at which these guys on the ballot currently in the league were accruing their stats, we didn't have super great hitters at first base and not have super great hitters. We had super great hitters everywhere, all over the diamond. So they just weren't that much better than their teammates. And then you get into that whole debate of, well, even if they weren't like, more valuable because of the, the good players at other positions. Does that mean we just don't put any first baseman from that era in? And I don't, I don't, that's a whole nother debate, but on the other hand, you know, you've got guys like Ritter and, um, and, uh, nightmare Guerrero who, so I, right. I don't know that they're well, really uh, a valid argument because those guys
1: message there, right. And is that the R in war is replacement. Right, what and replacement is different depending on where, what league you're in, uh, and what who the players right. are around you. To take it in a different light, you know, to open a different wound, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Justin Niles and I had a, a somewhat uh, uh, contentious and uh, conversation that I'm not particularly proud of uh, around Gail Sayers, right, in the Hall of Fame versus you know, Gail Sayers, you look at Gail Sayers' numbers and compare them to today's runners and if you just look at the numbers you can say, well who is this Gail Sayers? But if you look at who Gail Sayers was in nineteen sixty five and sixty six, relative to everyone else in the league, he was like this behemoth. There was just no I mean I mean even I'm getting excited <laughs> as I'm talking oh, it's about. Fun, it, right? like... Um and so yes, if you were if you were to compare If you were to take Gale Sayers as he was then and put him in the league right now, his value above replacement would be much less than it was back in 65. In 65 and 66 and 67, he was 10 times better than the average running back, right? Right. So do that same kind of comparison. Take Babe Ruth and put him in the league today, and he'd be a very different player with very different value, right? He would not scale. (laughs) It just wouldn't happen, you know, for lots of different reasons. Babe Ruth didn't play against pitchers who were arrested. Babe Ruth didn't play against African Americans. Babe Ruth didn't play night games with travel the way that it was. Um, He could have never been the night guy that he was (laughs) he literally
0: didn't play against players that were trying to hit the ball hard
1: so it's just different you know and he played in a different environment with different ballparks and you know all these different things go into it so yeah i I did you know the this question of relative you know to replacement is an interesting question and you know yes that's one of the reasons why a lot of our first baseman DH, for that matter don't score as well on the war title uh categories, assuming out of the park calculates it properly and all that other good stuff, as perhaps some of the uh, players would in real life, because, um, you know, again, run current day Major League Baseball up 15 years, and my projection would be, my, my guess would be that a lot of these DHs, for example, who don't play any defense, will see their war numbers drop relative to if they had played 20 years before, because their skill set is, you know, to your point, their skill set is more prevalent around the league. So, Right.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. We've actually already seen this happen one time, and the example of it is Fred McGriff. And there's this big argument of you look at Fred McGriff's numbers and he has almost 500 home runs, and he was a big part of those Atlanta Braves teams of the 90s right. that were so dominant. And he's not in. He shouldn't be in. He, when he played he was not one of the best, best first basemen in the league. His numbers don't, it doesn't necessarily matter. He wasn't one of the best first basemen in the league. He wasn't one of the best hitters in the league. He was very, 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 very good. But he just, because that was 490 some odd home runs in a league where you had like, you'd like doubled the number of 500 home run hitters, I think during that period, you know, you had, if not doubled, I mean, it was, significant change in the number of guys that got to 500 and 600 home runs during that all played at the same time of Fred McGriff. So his 490 home runs to me, I don't care, man. Like you worked among, uh, among the best. It would be very
1: interesting to see an alternate world where Fred McGriff was a jovial Ozzy Smith kind of a character, right? From a personality standpoint, right? right? Fred McGriff was a very quiet guy, very professional. Just sit down and go about my business, Um, you know, he didn't make a big deal. So it'd be very interesting to see how much, you know, in this context of hall of fame, Hall of, you know, what does it, it'd be very interesting to see if he had, if he had hit the Joe Carter home run, right. Um, If he had done, you know, had this moment where all eyes were on him and come through and had a narrative to his existence, would he have a different set of votes? I don't know. You know, yeah, I, and, I, and I think that actually probably, he, or if he played for the Yankees. Yeah, he probably, he probably might, would have, you, you just don't know. And so that gets into the conversation about hall of fame. I, I play both sides of this, right. I, I like, like I said, I like baseball because of its narratives. I like baseball because of what, um, that a person can raise themselves up over their numbers at certain points that a person, you know, Using the Gale Sayers conversation with Sandy Koufax, if you look at Sandy Koufax's raw numbers, he's kind of borderline. If you just sat down and looked at his numbers and compared them to some others, he's kind of borderline. There is no person in their right frame of mind that would ever say that Sandy Koufax should not be in the Hall (laughs) of Fame. There's just no way, because his story was the story of the 1960s in baseball
0: and the numbers the, the, the narrative should matter so even though like my very type a very pedantic value-based approach you know i, I voted for dusty Rhodes, like in, and that's i think it's the right thing to do even though that's that's contrary to my nature that the narrative does matter i just don't think a player should get in solely based upon a narrative you know that's the right. if their numbers aren't really that Right, and close. so what
1: we're talking about is what happens when the numbers are kind of squishy, but the narrative is very high, right? Mick, John Mick's numbers are very squishy. The narrative is pretty high. The other way, yeah. Um,
0: yeah, I don't know that the narrative on Mick nar- is that The narrative
1: on Mick <laughs> like, is I think we, less we only... high than Dusty Rhodes. The nerve on Dusty Rhodes is off the chart,
0: right? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I actually will recant one thing. I made a the whole thing with Aaron started on a comment I made about um, that he was right and I was wrong. You know, looking at those guys that are kind of on the, the they're in Madison and they're borderline, and you know, I made the comment that how can you have four Hall of Famers in your offense and the team not be great? Um, and he's absolutely right. The, the team that offense was yeah. great. That offense was legitimately great. It's backed up by John Mix RBI numbers. And I can't both make the argument that I don't care about his RBIs and make the argument that that team wasn't, that that offense yeah, wasn't Yeah, it good.
1: was a fantastic offense. And the problem with Madison at that stage is that Chris could never build a full team with pitching, you know, before it's all said and done.
0: So yeah, I think that's, that's just fair. You know, my
1: own um, uh, Lawrence Columbus Lelouch has, is off the chart on narrative. His raw numbers, his, his career curve has a Copax-like path without being as dominant as Copax was.
0: Or as devastated by injury, I think, as Kofax was. Like the thing about the the thing I haven't liked about this story that is developing about Lalouche is this idea that he was injured, and that was the end of his career. He came back after injury and pitched. He was vastly diminished. But well, the
1: difference there I is Kofax, Kofax quit. Right, Kofax did right. not get run out of the game by injury. Kofax had his great among his greatest year. He finished his five or six year career and then said. You know, I am not going to be a cripple, (laughs) so I'm out of here. If Lelouch would have gotten injured and then just not pitched uh, for three or four years, his war number, I actually did the study some time ago, I need to look at it again, but I think Koufax had like 47 or 48 war on his career. When Lelouch was 31 and got hurt, he had like 47 or 48 war. If he would have just retired, if it would have been a career-ending injury, he would have had almost the exact same conversation as as Copax. Lelouch has something in the range of fifty-three or fifty-five WAR or something, and so I should actually go look it up. I suppose uh, his last three or four years after whatever was about two or three WAR of that, so he'd have he'd have been right at that exact same curve, right? So that's the difference. That therein lies the difference, no, and the difference. Literally, I mean, quite. Koufax was the ace, number one, most dominant pitcher in I think you actually made a comment. I can't remember which. Uh, when Lelouch was winning his Nebraskas, he was just better than the other guys or one because of my personality or, you know, whatever you want to call it. He was he was very rarely you could look at him and say, well, he's just, you know, unanimous. Um, he, I don't think he won any unanimous Nebraska awards. But my point there is, is that, It's not to tell people they should vote for a Lelouch, which they should because he's my guy and I love him and all that other good stuff. My point there is is that Lelouch is very much narrative, very little counting stats, unless you count Nebraska's as a counting stat.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing with him that makes him so tough. I voted for him this time. I don't think I've ever not voted for him because I don't think I was voting at any of the other times when he had chances. Um, I think that if I had been voting in the previous years, I wouldn't have – And what finally turned it for me was looking at it and going, okay, if he'd retired. If he had retired rather than played after injury and his career had stopped there and I had that hard and fast in my mind that that's why his counting stats weren't higher and I knew that he'd won three Nebraskas and being in the league when he won them, like I don't think I ever thought that he had robbed someone else. That's what I'm trying to remember. Was it a thing where the being on good Yellow Spring teams – was the narrative that got him the Nebraska and somebody else was more deserving. But I don't think that was the case. No, I don't
1: think that was the case either. I, I would, I and, would argue that he won his awards, and you could make an argument at certain points that perhaps another uh, pitcher was in that same category, but I don't think he still right. And, it. And the, right. And
0: I think it was just that the best pitchers in the league just put up five and a half to six war mm-hmm. at that point in time. I mean, Cisco Morales won in Nebraska. With 5.8 WAR, you know, like it just, and so when when you've got um, putting up six something, well, by today's standards and by some standards of other periods of time, that's not that great. Um, and he wasn't he wasn't striking out 300 batters. Well, people didn't used to strike out 250 batters even. That's what made Ricardo Diaz what Ricardo Diaz was is that he struck out 250 batters every single year. But that's not. How it used to be, you know, getting to 200 used to be really, really good. So I Luce is like just a very, very interesting case. But yeah, what, what brought me around was the um, OK, he's got three Nebraskas. And if he had just had a career ending injury rather than coming back and playing diminished, would I vote him in? And when I decided the answer was yes, then I just said, you know what? Screw <laughs> it, just.
1: Well, the other thing that uh, that I'll come back to is a capper here, because I think we've, we've kind of beat the heck out of the topic. You know, I will come back to the question, I think either you or Aaron had made some comment about pictures of the era sometimes putting up fewer war. Remember, the R in war is replacement. And so one of the problems that we have been having over the past five seasons here in the BBA is that I think we we do have a lot of really good pitching, but it's really hard to find a good number four and five, right? right. So the replacement so, level of uh, pitchers in today's, my argument here, I don't actually know this for true, but my argument here for that, you know, why was there this span where um, the best pitchers were only putting up five and six or seven war versus the eight or nine or whatever we get today. My argument on that is, there were more better pitchers, so replacement yeah, level. Was I think higher. you're absolutely.
0: I think you're absolutely right. Especially like <laughs> we're going to see that number start to come down because I think our, we're finally getting some young pitching back into the league, and it's not just good dominant starters, but more mid rotation, right. end of the rotation guys. I think it's I think it's improving. Um, I know that we were trying to make this a quick one, but you made me think of something else I wanted to talk about. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> Go for it. Do you feel like I do, there's two, two questions, two parts of this. Do you feel like I do that? Uh, we are seeing more young and non-aces for a while. They're the only young pitching that comes into those coming into the league was number one and twos. And as I look around, you know, I have accrued. what brought this up is I, I have a bunch of, you know, number three and four starters, basically in a number two, I have a number two and then a bunch of number fours based in my rotation. And, I think three, four seasons ago, I would have had a middling to good even rotation. Now I don't think I have a good one. So I think that makes me believe that we're, we're finally coming out of that just dearth of decent back-end pitching uh, state. So that's, that's part one. Part two is, as I was looking around at center fielders, for whatever reason I was looking at them, I have seen a large number, I mean like 10, 10, 11 teams that are planning on playing guys with like – eight to nine range that are rated seven or eight in center field. Um, And to a lesser degree, I have seen more shortstops, you know, for a while, if you weren't, everybody was playing a guy rated nine, 10, 11 at, at both shortstop and center field. And I see people playing more guys in the, in the eight range uh, and some sevens, even in center field, Do you think we are finally coming out of the super high defensive ratings for every player across the board and started with corner outfielders, you know, 10 years ago? Or do you think we just have more guys that are either not understanding that we need defensive players or we're getting more people sacrificing defense for offense? Do you think it's the the player pool change or just people um, using players differently?
1: I don't know. (laughs) That the the real answer is I don't know, but you I think that some to some degree those could be interrelated. You know the idea that we're getting better pitchers coming into the game starts to say that um, you need better hitters. If you need better hitters, you're willing to sacrifice defense for offense a little bit more. You, you know when I came into the league. I don't want to say there's controversy, but, I mean, I was playing Angel DiCastillo at shortstop with a 7 range. His bat was so strong that he created value that way, but he was also only like a minus 4 or minus 5 zone rating, so you could kind of get away with that. A 7 range guy over the past 5 years in the BBA would be putting up minus 22 war at shortstop, and that would be, because remember, R is replacement. (laughs) Um, Right. And so that would just not have been tenable. He could not play shortstop for anybody at that stage. So that's an interesting question. I uh, I tend to agree that it feels like we're getting a better mid-range of pitchers. We'll see what the results are here this year, and it makes me want to go back and do another uh, tabulation. Back a few years ago, I did a tabulation on... Uh, ratings and number one, two, three, you know, just trying to get a flavor of right. that. It makes me want to go back and do a compare uh, kind of thing. Obviously, if you can have a 10-range shortstop who can provide some amount of offense, I think that people will deal with that. But I, was it was you and Joe did a great conversation about the fact that offense is so down in the shortstop range. That just says there's a great opening for, you know, Moneyball is not about walks. Moneyball is about finding value in the marketplace. And right. if right. you suddenly have a guy who can just scrape by playing shortstop, but he can hit X better than all of these nimble ballerina shortstop, Mark Belanger shortstops, uh, then suddenly you can make hay <laughs> by, by putting in a few guys who can actually hit, even if it costs you some runs in the field. So I'm, I'm, one of the beautiful things about being in the BBA for many seasons is that you can see these rating shifts, not, so, not just by player development and so forth, but by manager choice. One of the reasons why we might have certain unicorns who put up big counting numbers is that managers, general managers in the BBA might be willing to let their favorite player play for longer when in real life, if they did that, their fans would be dreaming. <laughs> you know, I don't know. That's a, a, a supposition. I, that all these things go together. It's just kind of a. It's fun to think about and fun to watch it play out. And uh, and so the real answer to your question is: Do I see that happening? Is I see it happening, but I don't know if it's real yet. It probably takes another year or two to figure <laughs> that out. But that's why they pay us the big bucks as the GMs is to look at those trends and try to decide what's real and how to how to uh, tweak them for our own personal value. Yeah, no, I agree. I just the one of the reasons
0: I bring those two things up is I'm excited. I, I love. Um, I would love this. I'm sure everybody would be relieved if we weren't in the uh, pitching. You know, it's impossible to fill out a rotation era anymore. And then personally, I didn't like it when you had to play a guy that had a range of at least a range of nine and an overall rating of nine at center field and shortstop to even stay just below league <laughs> average. It was just it was just too much. You know, yeah. it, was, it was the uh, I gave you very little variation on the types of players you can use and the types of teams you could put together you know, then, like I said, the same thing you came to the league shortly after me. And if I had a guy that was rated eight overall, at shortstop, I had like one of the good defending shortstops. In fact, I had like, and it was nice. And i also don't feel like it was just a rating shift. Like, well, yeah, that's a, I'm not sure that thought's correct. But the point being is that, you know, you could play a seven in center field and then not be a negative two war mm-hmm. player, just on defense alone. And so it's, it it was just, it just felt, you know, when everybody had to be rated nine and ten at a skill position, it was just, it's such a strain. You know, you were just ruling out so many players because their glove wasn't good enough. So it, it'd be nice if we're yeah. going back
1: there. Well, like I said, it, it interacts together, right? I mean, you could make an argument that people are throwing nines into the field all the time because there are just no bats. So right. know, if there are no bats, then there's no. Game theory advantage. If you have two players and one of them is a bat with no glove and the other is a glove with no bat, then you actually have a game theory question. But if all you've got is a whole bunch of players that are mediocre bats, then you say, okay, well then I'm going to play the nine or ten glove, (laughs) right? Right. So uh, you know, how do you judge those two? There's a combination of uh, you've got the shoeless type of GMS who like that uh, defensive pitching kind of. Player, So there's a GM decision, and then there's also the game theory of if the game, uh, if the development engine is on a swing that makes the GM decision easier, then you go in a certain direction. So anyway, I don't know.
0: <laughs> Well, we have, um, I, you know, you and I before we started today, we were like we both have crazy amounts of media guides stuff to do, so we're going to try to keep this one short. We failed miserably. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry.
1: And yes, by the way, the media guide is coming in. It's going to be brilliant. It's going to be really fantastic. I'm starting to read some of the articles that the guys are writing. Uh, this is so much fun. Anyway, go on. No, you're, you're fine.
0: fine. Um, we failed. <laughs> we failed again. Um, and I am sorry for that. It is your turn to edit, and we ran long. Um, but I had a lot of fun. Like. We always do. I think we had some good topics today. I hope everybody enjoyed listening. Thanks, Ron, for doing this again.
1: You're welcome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. All
0: right. Well, goodbye, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time.
1: You've been listening to the BBA Today, a podcast that covers the Brewster Baseball Association every day. Music is Bold Statement, available at www.beslianstudios.com and used with attribution. Be safe and well, and we will hear you again tomorrow.